0: Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Holy Father, we come before you this morning desiring as all of always to glorify you. Our desire is not to make a statement to make ourselves remembered for all time. Our desire is not to have a huge ministry. Our desire is not to be rich and famous, wealthy and popular. Although we like all those things, they're not our, des- our heart's desire. Our desire is to serve you to make your name known throughout the world and to be a blessing to that name. Lord, we pray your hand of protection over the people here, over everyone that we know, everyone that we encounter, and, Lord, everyone that knows everyone that we know, out to all the six degrees until everyone in the world is covered. pray your hand of protection specifically over your people in Israel, dealing, as always, with attacks, spiritual, mental, and physical. Lord, we just ask that you would enable the enemies of your people to become also your people and, and come into relationship with you. In the name of Messiah, I pray these things. M'shem M'shiach, amen. Ah. i tell you what, I've actually got a little bit of a headache today. It's, it's, like, it's been a weird week. And then uh, my wife asked me to give her, well, she was feeling kind of bummed because her car, you've seen her car, right? The, the front, well, I know you haven't. Give me a break. She reminds me of another joke. Did you hear Jose Feliciano got a new house? Have you seen it? No. Neither was he. Okay. Anyway, she, she was feeling kind of down because her car is... She loves her car, but it is falling apart. And if, we have to replace it within the next year or so because she's not going to pass smog again. So we either need to move to another state that doesn't have draconian smog laws or, or uh, get, get a new car. And so she said, I would really like to have something that goes from zero to 200 in about a second and a half. So I bought her a scale and, and, and I, the next thing I remembered, I had a headache. (laughs) I'm getting a stink eye from up above. You wouldn't believe. (laughs) They did. That's why I have a headache. And good, thank you for bringing up our topic. I just want to open up with, who here remembers Burger King? Now I know there's Burger King is still around. Who remembers, who remembers Burger King? You know, and, and their, their big slogan was, have it your way. Yes. Hold the pickles, hold the lettuce, special orders, don't upset us. Yeah, when I was a kid, I remember watching those commercials and thinking, that's cool. And I look back and go, that's not cool. But they were when I was seven, you know. I drove my parents buggy. I was singing that jingle all the time. They hated Burger King just because I would sing that song all the time. Good burgers, though. Or how, about, how many of you have ever gone to a restaurant for breakfast? Raise your hand if you've ever gone to a restaurant for breakfast. Okay, Do you, Keep your hand up if you got eggs for breakfast at a restaurant. Okay. Nice. Did the server or did the server not ask you this question, how would you like your eggs? Yeah, every single time. When I was young, I used to tell them, you know, surprise me. As a teenager, I thought I was being a smart butt. And so, uh, you know, usually I'd get scrambled because, you know, they, they were afraid that if they brought me something really weird or uh, that I wouldn't wasn't my favorite, that I just would not give them a tip or I would leave a bad review or something. This is way before the days of Yelp, but still people heard things. And uh, finally, one guy brought me a raw egg, cold out of the fridge. That guy got a $20 tip because he's the first one who actually surprised me. Now, as per usual, I'm going to ask how many read the readings for this week. Okay. How many have a good excuse for not reading the readings? Okay. You've... <laughs> My Jerry is getting me today. You could have them read to you. Tahabo can do it. He reads Hebrew, right? All right, so when you read the readings, did you find the passage about fast food restaurants and special orders? You did? What version were you reading? Because it's not in there. Right, John's just messing with me now. I, mean, I deserve it, I know. <laughs> it's not. That. Instead, the whole portion of Whole first portion of this parasha, as was read to you, remember what was the phrase? Remember, justice, justice shall you prefer, pursue. Lord, bless my mouth and keep it saying the words that are supposed to come out of it. Justice, justice shall you pursue. It's all about being impartial in justice, about being just in our justice. As an aside, how many people notice that the word for justice is also the same word for righteousness? Besides Mike and John. Okay. It's about being fair to everybody equally. On one hand, that means not giving special privileges to the rich and powerful, or popular, or famous. I hate to say it, but it also means not giving favor to the poor and the meek among us, or penalizing them. Neither side gets a bonus or a deficit in a perfectly just society; they just get treated according to the law. Uh, now, can you imagine how terrible it would be to live in a world where that wasn't the case, where rich people got off and poor people ended up more in jail, where you where people who had people driving a uh, old Pontiac got tickets a lot more often than people driving the latest Mercedes. That would be a terrible place to live. The premise we have here in this week's portion is that God wants us to be absolutely just. Absolutely just. Why? Because we're to be like him, and he is absolutely just. Altogether just. When God tells us what to do and gives us his laws... He doesn't give you, you know, maybe you should. The Ten Commandments, they're not the Ten Suggestions. And we take a look at the list and point out the one that starts, uh, if you feel like it, or if it seems right to you. Is, Is that in there anywhere? Now, this is a abbreviated and modern list. I think this one's pretty e- much easier to understand because it didn't have any of those highfalutin words in it that I love um, but I guarantee you that uh, if you think if you think it's right is not in the original Hebrew text either. It doesn't say honor your father and mother if you had a pleasant childhood and they're cool guys. Keep the Sabbath unless you have a really good reason not to. How about? Don't steal, unless it's the government, or they can afford it. And don't bear false witness, unless they really, really deserve to be punished. Maybe that's in an alternate text somewhere. I don't think so. I have yet to find it. So what we're dealing with here is the whole issue of absolute morality, absolute justice. And we're contrasting that with the issue of relative morality. Whether or not our own biases and point of view have any bearing on the debate between absolute and relative morality. How many of you would like me to define those two terms? I get one hand, okay. Moral relativism is simply the idea, and this is very simple, you can get much more into it, but this is the basic idea, that values, what's right and wrong, can change depending on one's culture or even one's own opinion. Uh, how many of you have known people who are like that? Well, I don't think it's wrong, so I should be okay doing it. You hear that all right? Look at the political spectrum in our country today. Let's take a quick and easy one, abortion. It's really easy to define the right versus the left in abortion, right? Because the right, and I'll confess I'm with the right on this, says it is wrong to murder something. It's wrong to murder a human being whether they've been born yet or not. Sometimes they die, and that's not that's up to God, but it's not wrong for us to murder them. And then on the left you have the opinion that, well, it's not really a person yet anyway, So you're not, it's just like taking out a tumor. From their point of view, there's nothing wrong with abortion because they don't see that as a person. They would agree with you that committing murder is wrong. They would just argue whether or not that constitutes murder. And that is the trouble with moral relativism, is that pretty much everybody makes up their own rules. Nobody can ever do anything wrong because they're doing what they think is right. How many of you think that moral relativism is a pretty new idea that's come up in the last 30, 40 years? No? Uh, How old do you think moral relativism is? Pretty close. Any other ideas? No, we're all thinking about as old as mankind. You're probably right. Um, officially the earliest philosophers, and yes, I'm going with Greek philosophy. Don't shoot me. The earliest philosophers promoted in writing the idea of moral relativism uh, were around about the 5th century B.C. Thrasmachus, who is quoted in Plato's Republic, and Thericides, no, Thucydides, I'm sorry. You don't need to know these later. I just have them in my text, so I'm reading them. They're good examples. Uh, the sophists, notably Protagoras, Gorgias, and some of their followers, also really associated with the idea of relativistic thinking. The idea that there is no absolute right and absolute wrong, it depends on your point of view. In fact, uh, in the fifth century BC, Herodotus tells the story of how the Persian king Darius, do you remember him? Yes. He had a huge empire that basically everybody, he conquered. Well, the Babylonians conquered pretty much everybody and then Darius conquered the Babylonians so he got everybody. Um, He has some Greeks at his court. There were some Greeks at his court. The Greeks were sitting over here having a nice meal. And the Kalitiae were over here having a nice meal. Anybody ever heard of the Kalitiae? I had not before this week. The Kalitiae are actually an Indian tribe from, from, from India, not from non-American Indians. Those wouldn't show up in Greece in the 5th century BC. But there were people from India there, and the Kalitiae were a particular tribe there. And what one of the big things that separated them from the other tribes was that they practiced endocannibalism, which means consuming the bodies of your ancestors. Um as an aside, we don't know where the word Kalitia came from. Herodotus is about the only person who ever wrote them, them calling them that. Uh, we think it has to do with the Greek Kala, which means black because they were very dark skinned, especially compared to Greeks. So anyway, he, he asked the Greeks if there's any price that, that they would, they'd have, that he would could pay to get them, to make them willing to eat their dead father's bodies the way the Kalitia did. Well, the Greeks said absolutely nothing could induce them to do this. I think most of us would fall in that same camp. I can't imagine anyone paying me enough to you know, eat my father's body. Now, Darius then asked some, some who were present if they were to ever consider burning their father's bodies, as was the custom among the Greeks, or in our case, burying. The Kletiae were horrified at this. What an insult to their ancestors. That was shocking. Herodotus sees the story as vindicating the poet Pindar's dictum that custom is lord of all. People's beliefs and practices are shaped by custom, and they typically assume that their own ways are the best. Um, In the Midwest, we grew up having a big, huge breakfast, And then a big huge dinner and then supper later at night. Supper was usually not quite as big. It was leftovers from breakfast and dinner if there were any. Because it was a farm community and you ate thousands and thousands of calories because you then went out and worked your, took us off and burned them all off. The trouble comes when then you move into the city and you keep eating that way. And so when you're living on a farm, that's a good way to eat. That's it's an appropriate now for people living in the city, going to an office every day, you know, sitting at a desk, punching your adding machine. This is not an appropriate way to eat. It's just wrong. It's going to make you fat. It's going to make you die. So let me ask you: Is the big meal right or wrong? Yeah. It, That's something that really, that's not really a moral issue, so it's easier to define. That one depends on your circumstances. When we try to apply that same thought process to more morality is when we get into trouble. Now as Torah observant believers, of course, our refutation of moral relativism is an illustrative one. Uh, the book of Judges. Israelites over and over again, corporately and individually do what was right in their own eyes that's unfamiliar, familiar that's just what we've been talking about and because of it they suffered defeats and punishments for it over and over again in fact while there are certainly there are some great heroes of the faith in judges but the vast majority of judges it's the story of the, the people we n- never hear about because they're, they're not neat, cool stories about heroes. The entire book is essentially a picture of the land that Joshua took by miles by the blessing of Hashem, being lost by inches when the commandments about Hashem were quickly forgotten. How long did it take Joshua to conquer the land of Canaan? That I mean, he didn't drive all the people out like he was supposed to, but to establish Israel as the rulers of Canaan, how long did that take? There's actually some debate about that, historically. Anywhere from five to fifty years is the range that people will give. And then there's those who say it never actually happened, it's happened over thousands of years, but we don't listen to them. Um, but the point is in a relatively short amount of time the land became a God-fearing land full of God's people doing God's commandments, keeping God's ways. And then Joshua died. And after Joshua died, everyone went, we don't really have a leader. You know, this is, I know we're not supposed to eat pigs, but, you know, they're, they're good. Uh, that, that whole not marrying Canaanites thing, She really digs me. You know, how big of a deal was it if if I'm only one guy? If if I marry a Canaanite girl? I mean, heck, uh, Abraham married outside the faith, right? Of course, in his case, he was marrying outside the family, so maybe that was a different thing. Esau took Canaanite women as his wives. So there were precedents for them to follow and say, hey, our ancestors did it, why don't we? Except the difference for them was that God had said not to. I really want to mention the story of Noah here. (laughs) I really wanted to. I, I started writing this portion of the message thinking, our illustration is Noah, when everybody did what was right in their own eyes and God wiped out the world, right? I went looking, and that passage is actually not in there, even though every commentary talks about it. It's not in any of the passages in the New Testament that talk about the time of Noah. What it says is the people did evil. It doesn't say they did what they thought was right, it says they did evil. And violence. I think the reason why we say, where we go along with the whole doing what was right in their own eyes, is that our, our spirits balk at the idea of somebody doing evil knowing that it's evil. If you go back through history, think of some of the worst people you can. Ah, uh, Genghis Khan, not a nice guy. He was doing what he thought was best for his empire and his family. His family being him and his heirs to his empire. Not that there wasn't some selfishness there, but what he thought what he was doing was right. The Pharaoh who turned the Israelites into slaves. Why did he do that? Because he thought the the Israelites would outnumber the Egyptians and his people would be wiped out. I don't think he was right about that. But from his point of view, what he did was right. Even the H-man, that I don't want to mention by name, Not the one from Esther, the more recent one. In his twisted mind, he thought that what he was doing was good for the world. He was wrong, of course. He was an evil man. But I don't think he thought that what he was doing was evil. I don't think he woke up in the morning and said, Hey, This is right, but I'm gonna do this over here because it's wrong. I'm, I'm going to do evil because it's evil and evil is cool. People just don't do that except for extreme psychopaths. Which he might have been, so. I'm not a psychologist, I'm not gonna get into clinical definitions. But the point is because The idea that people would intentionally do what they knew was wrong so much that God had to destroy the world is such anathema to our ideas of people as people. What it says is that there was not a spark of good in these people. They were wholly evil. And we just really don't want to imagine that. And so we add our interpretation that Everyone was doing what was right in their own eyes, which wasn't right, but it was right in their own eyes. Because that we can live with. It's also another one of the dangers of moral relativism. We can justify evil by saying it was all right in their eyes. Now, knowing this and acknowledging the sovereignty of Adonai, Do we stand firmly in the camp of moral absolutism? Well, I'm not hearing a resounding yes. That scares me. Are we moral absolutists? You sound like he wants me to say yes. I don't know if I think he's... Is he trying to trick me? I'm not trying to trick you. Yes. As scripture followers, we believe in moral absolutes. That when God said this, he meant this. He didn't mean this or that. He meant this. There's plenty of scripture to support this. Uh, good examples, there are very black and white commandments in scripture. They leave no gray room. Thou shalt not murder. Thou shalt not move a neighbor's landmark. That didn't seem like a, okay, I, okay I'll let it go. That's, that's not so. Thou shalt erect safety railings. That didn't seem like a huge moral... Okay, but but God said it, so it's a moral absolute. Uh, Thou shalt not dig latrines too close to the camp. Well, that's just common sense, but it doesn't seem like a moral issue, does it? It seems more like a hygiene thing. But nonetheless, God commands it, and so it is a moral issue. How do we know that they are strong absolutes. on These are pretty minor things, some of them. And you think that the priests came out with a tape measure and said, "Ah, oh, this latrine is six inches too close to the camp. That's a code violation. Got to move it. Now, if they were modern code enforcement, yes, that's exactly what they do, but I don't think that happened. In fact, they would have a 12-inch short tape measure so they could say it was 12-inch too long tape measure so they could say it was six inches too close. But there were really harsh penalties for minor sins in, in the Torah. Is that right? Yes? Okay. Are we still awake? All except Tina? Okay. And Doug's getting close. <laughs> um, eating tall bread during the Feast of Matzah. What's this, what, what do you think is the penalty for that? Exile. Wow. Having a piece of toast during Passover. Exile. Whew. How about not purifying with the ashes of the red heifer after touching a dead body? What do you think is penalty for that? Anyone? No guesses? Uh, exile. Okay. All right, ladies. How about grabbing your husband's privates to drag him out of a fight? What do you think, you get the, what do you think the biblical penalty is for that? It's in there, I swear. Cut off the hand. Off the hand. Off the hand. Yeah. I guess that's better than exile. It'll keep you from grabbing your husband again, I guess. (laughs) Working on Saturday. Not being a virgin when you get married. (laughs) Cursing your parents. Dad, I hate you. Death, all of them. Wow, I'm wondering how empty the high schools would be. I remember the first time Becca came to me and she said, she, we were fighting about something. I don't even remember what the fight was about. She was, you know, my father, I hate you. And she slammed the door and I went, I'm finally a real parent. <laughs> oh, those are all capital crimes. If I were to follow the strictest Merciless interpretation of Torah. The rule would have been to have to take her out before the priestly court and have her tried with the penalty being stoning. Now based on these, it seems like we have a really clear idea of what constitutes what's right and what's wrong, right? And the harshness of the penalties Makes it pretty clear there are no shades of gray between right and wrong. In God's parlance, there is no kind of right, and kind of wrong. It's kind of like being kind of pregnant. You're, you're, no, it's you're either or. This causes a problem. Are you all seeing this problem before I talk about it? I see a couple nods and a bunch of I don't want to look at them. I know I'm ugly. Look at me anyway. You won't turn to stone, I promise. Well, no one has yet. Now, the problem is that what we're going over here is actually a really superficial treatment of this topic. Um, I have, you know, an hour, 45 minutes or so to talk about a subject that could easily cover several hours or days. But it all runs up the, the, you know We have these harsh penalties. It all runs up against the issue of man's sinful nature. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. I sin. I'm not going to ask you if you sin, but I know you do. Uh, my wife can attest to the fact that I've sinned at least 15 times today. And I'm not even halfway through the day. And that's just the one she saw. In fact, some might think that that joke was a sin. I don't know. It was? Okay, thank you. You see, the problem is that while Torah does mention forgiveness, it does so only a few times. And all of those times is in the context of somebody else bearing your sin when Moses offered to be struck down in order to save Israel after the golden calf incident he said uh, forgive them I think I conjugated that wrong Uh, when a father or a husband abrogates the vow of a daughter or a wife we tried that just a few weeks ago right that—that That is forgive, forgive their vow. Make it as though it never happened. Uh, I think those three instances are the only time that word is used meaning forgiveness. every And the word is used 40 or 50 times in the Torah. But every other time it means uh, to pick something up and carry it. Or to look up Because the root is to lift something. To forgive forgive someone is to lift the burden off of them and carry it yourself. On the other hand, what we do see over and over again in, in reference to sacrifices and the resolution of sin in Scripture is kafar, atonement. Yes, it's the same word as in Yom Kippur, Now, this would be fine if sin magically evaporated when it was covered up. Because kafar means to cover something, right? Uh, my best illustration is Noah's Ark. Again, going back to Noah's Ark. The Ark was kafar. It was covered within and without with pitch. Um Atonements don't expunge the record of sin. It only covers it like pitch covers a boat to keep it watertight. That boat can still capsize. It can still swamp and sink. Eventually, the wood will rot under the sealant. Atonement is only a temporary solution. How many of you remember being in school and they warned you, this is going to go on your permanent record Then you got out of school and found out there is no such thing as a permanent record of stuff you did in school. You know, nobody keeps you. Well, maybe the government clearance people. If you're going for top-secret clearance, they might interview your teachers. But it's just not on a record. They will talk to the people and find out about you. There's not a huge book at the NSA going, uh huh. uh-huh. Oh, talk back to his third-grade teacher, huh? Oh, nope, no clearance for you doesn't happen. So atonement covers the sin, but the sin is still there. You can't see it. And really, God can't see it. He's capable of seeing it. He chooses not to see it when it's covered. But again, that's a temporary solution because we keep sinning. If Adam and I were to treat humanity as we deserve for our sinful nature, with absolute justice, untempered by mercy, there would only be one generation of humans on the planet. You know that. You never would have gotten past Adam and Eve. And maybe with the kids that were born before the fall. Because Scripture's not real clear on whether that happened or not. I think kind of would have had to for her to be, understand the idea that childbirth would now be painful when it wasn't before, but that's an, that's something it's implied, not specifically stated. So don't go to your other pastor friends and say, "He said it's in the Bible." I did not. I said I'm inferring that from scripture. But anyway, as soon as Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, they'd be dead, and no more kids. And the kids that were already born before the fall, well, they'd either starve to death because they don't know how to take care of themselves, or, you know, as soon as they became consciously aware of what sin was, they'd all die too. As soon as anyone willfully sinned, they'd be dead and hadn't able to have progeny, so no more kids, no more humanity, which would have solved a lot of problems. Will also lead to no benefits whatsoever. So, what is the resolution to the problem of absolute justice? Is justice tempered by mercy? Is that a cop out? Is, is is Are we falling? Are we like? pulling back on our absolute justice to say that it's tempered with mercy? Does that question make anyone uncomfortable? Are you lying? Okay. Adam I holds the punishment for our sins. Again, so that we can have children and pass on the generation and hopefully teach our children to be better than we are. In my case, that's easy. I was an awful young person, not a great adult. But he holds the punishment for our sins until death. Um, he doesn't withhold the consequences of our sins, but he withholds the eternal punishment for them. And then because atonement can only temporarily cover sins, he gives us one solitary path to forgiveness, which completely lifts the sin away. I heard a lot of people saying, it's really not, you know, I don't believe a loving God would only give one way to forgiveness. Imagine a prisoner sentenced to death by drowning. That was the punishment for his crime. So he's thrown in a a cistern full of water, smooth walls, he can't climb out. He's just left there to drown. It's pretty bleak. Would it be unfair to offer him a rope for him to pull himself out? Simple yes or no question. Would that be unfair? Would it be merciful to give him a rope to pull himself out? Okay. Uh, But what if he wants a boat or or uh, a ladder or water wings, a whole bunch of other ways to get out? If all those things are available, is it fair to give him just a rope? Yes. Yes, you're giving him a way out. That's absolutely merciful and just. It's more than he deserves. Because we've all agreed in this, in this construct, we've agreed that he deserves to die by drowning. And it's our mercy, in the mercy of the court, they give him one way out, one way to not die. In this way, justice is absolutely, he was sentenced to the penalty for his crimes but he was offered one single way to have that crime forgiven. Justice is absolute, but the penalty is conditional. Think about that for a second. The justice is absolute. It is absolutely right or absolutely wrong. It is a crime or it isn't. But the penalty can depend on your appeal to the court is that justice if it's applied the same to everybody yes it is uh there's a famous quote about this whole justice mercy tension uh by St Thomas Aquinas i can i confess in some ways i'm a big fan of aquinas uh Because he's considered the father of reasoned theology, of using one's mind as much or more than one's heart and feelings to interpret Scripture. I've been to lots of churches where they tell me, you need to stop thinking about you need to just feel what God's telling you. I'm thinking, well, then I don't really know what he's telling me, I'm just a vague feeling, and the Bible says the heart is deceitful. Plus, I don't think God would have given us a brain and told us not to use it. That's just me. That, that isn't God speaking. That's just me. Now, I admit, I'm not a fan of Aquinas's promotion of economic supersessionism. Anyone know that term? Okay. It has nothing to do with money, by the way. It's the idea that there was a time for the Jewish people And now that time has passed and God's economy has moved on to the next stage. Okay. Um, It is anti-Semitism, and that's why I'm not a big fan of him for that. It's by no means the harshest and cruelest form of anti-Semitism, like punitive anti-Semitism, which says the Jews are now evil and we need to wipe them out, which is what Hitler was a fan of. I said his name, sorry. Uh, but it's still, he's not a fan of Israel. I would disagree with him greatly on that topic. I would agree with him greatly on other topics. Does that mean he's a good guy or a bad guy? It's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? Um, dispensationalism is, yes, a form of supersessionism. And supersessionism is replacement theology, which we all know is good or bad? Okay, good. I finally got a question I could get an answer from. Anyway, what St. Thomas Aquinas, and I say, I give him the saint because it's common appellation for him. Not that I think he's any more of a saint than anyone here, but St. Thomas Aquinas. He said, mercy without justice is the mother of dissolution. Yes, I can see you going, mother of dissolution, what is, uh, uh, I have no idea what that means. It means that mercy without justice means there are no rules. It's anarchy. Everything falls apart. Justice without mercy is cruelty, is the other half of the quote. You see why both extremes are bad. Justice without mercy, and everybody on earth is dead within a generation. Mercy without justice, and everybody's doing whatever they want. They're doing evil, and God wipes out the planet. He said he wouldn't do it by flood. He didn't say he wouldn't do it again. So we, the question is, how... Now, our, our little human brains struggle with this. How can God, how can Adam I be both absolutely just and absolutely merciful and do both perfectly? I I couldn't do it. Can anyone anyone here think they could do that? I make it easier. Anyone here try to do that? I'm I'm not the only one, I think. I think we all try to be both just and merciful. We all fail miserably at it because we're not God. It's a good thing for you all that I'm not God because I fail miserably at the whole perfectly just and perfectly merciful thing. I'd wake up with a headache and you know, sentence y'all to death for whatever you deserved a year ago just because I'm spiteful and miserable. But the way God can do this is by including mercy and forgiveness as part of the law. Justice means that you deserve that penalty because the law says you do, right? So if the law also says that mercy and forgiveness are in there, then you can apply mercy and still be perfectly just. Just not if I'm making any sense at all. Okay. Have you ever considered, I say, maybe back up a step. In the Christian church, when you're being a legalist and condemning people, It's for keeping what? The law. And what represents the law in scripture and in the physical plane? The temple. Well, the Torah, yes. What's at the very center of the temple? The Holy of Holies. And what's in the Holy of Holies? Well, the Ark. And the mercy seat is the covering for the Ark. And that's where God's Shekinah glory rests when when he's physically dwelling with his people, is on the seat of mercy, not the seat of justice. Because he is just, and justice is easy. It's easy to condemn without considering mercy. Mercy is hard, and only God can be absolutely just and absolutely merciful, and the mercy is the miracle. That's why when God dwells in the temple, he's sitting on the seat of mercy. In Exodus 34, 5 and 6, And Adonai descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of Adonai. Adonai passed before him and proclaimed, Adonai, Adonai Elohim, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that Adonai thy God, he is Elohim, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. I think the most telling one I picked up here is Numbers fourteen eighteen. The Lord is long-suffering, and of great mercy, forgiving iniquity and transgression, and by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation. Has anyone ever looked at that verse and gone, "Huh"? That, that verse always confused me because it says on the one hand he's forgiving and merciful. Then he says, he absolutely doesn't let the guilty off the hook. He sentences the drowning man to drown in the cistern. And then he offers the rope to let them get out, out of his mercy. He is absolutely just. He remembers, every, He knows everything that we've done in our lives. He's the Lord. He could not not know everything that happens in His creation. And yet, He willfully ignores our sins because they are covered by the blood of Yeshua and are, we are forgiven. It is as though our sins didn't exist. Not as though they were just covered up, as though they didn't exist. This has been kind of an esoteric teaching today. It's kind of all head knowledge. And so how would you take this and apply this to your life on a daily level? If you're a district court judge, that's real obvious how you're going to apply it. Anybody here a judge? I don't think we have any policemen with us here currently. I could be wrong. Um, You know, people who are normally involved in their daily life with the dispensation of justice. You have some parents and grandkids. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. That, that was the Lord speaking to you, not just me. He said you understands the Lord that um, justice or mercy, justice is of the Lord. Justice of the Lord yeah. yeah. He if that is part of the condition of lowering the rope, yeah. The, the condition is accepting that you are sinful and accepting Yeshua's sacrifice. That, that, that is the rope that is lowered. And it's the only way out. I'm sorry, I didn't make that clear earlier. I should have. As I said, it's been a weird week. But anyway, the way you can apply this in your daily life is very simply follow the example of Yeshua as well as you can. We're not going to do it perfectly, but do it as well as you can by following the Torah as well as you can. But just like Yeshua did, prioritizing mercy and compassion over strict adherence to the letter of the law. If someone needs healing on the Sabbath, by your words, you may be a medical professional or need to give first aid, do it. Technically, yes, it's wrong to do that on the Sabbath. But compassion outweighs that negative commandment. Even the rabbis in the most orthodox communities will tell you that. The Pharisees in Yeshua's time often didn't. I think a lot of that was because they were actively trying to catch him in something. Um, Yeshua fed his hungry disciples from the gleanings of the field, which the Pharisees following him interpreted as, he's harvesting crops on the Sabbath. Well, yeah, he was. Picking up some couple stalks of wheat and rubbing it in his hands and eating the grains. I used to do that as a kid all the time because we had wheat fields. I haven't done it since I moved to California. I don't know that I'd trust anything I saw looking like wheat growing out here. How about when the paralytic was let through the roof in Peter's house? It was Peter's house, wouldn't it? I think so. This was on the Sabbath he was teaching and he forg- he forgave sins that was the big deal they said whoa you can't do that if you're a priest you could uh, help him atone for his sins but you can't forgive sins that you know that's blasphemy only God can do that well yeah you're right only God can do that and he did it as you go through your life, day in and day out, I hate to tell you this, but you're going to be dealing with people. You'll stay at home. You're going to have to deal with people at some point. Those people, everything they do will be one of two things. It will either be right or it will be wrong. When they do what's right, what do you do? Praise them for it. Yeah, that's easy. We commend them for it and try to follow their example. When they do what's wrong, what do you do? Well, that's a little harder. We don't want them to hate me for, we don't want to be that guy who says, oh, you're, you're, you're sinning again. Well, you can be that way. Right? I used to be that way without being nice. I try to be nicer about it now. Still fail miserably often, but I try to be nicer about it. But when you see someone sinning, think, is there a reason that in my limited understanding opens the door to mercy here? Do I know enough to really condemn him or her for what they're doing? Scripture says, do not steal. Getting extra scriptural here. Has anyone ever read uh, Les Miserables by Victor Hugo? Oh, good, because it's an awful book. Has anybody seen the musical or the movies? No? Oh, great musical. You should see that. Valjean was sentenced to five years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. Yeah. Yeah, Les Miserables. He was sentenced to five years in prison for stealing a loaf of bread. And you look at that and say, he stole. Of course he deserves to go to prison. He stole a loaf of bread because his wife or his sister, I think it was his sister, and her child were starving to death. In light of that is some mercy called for. Doesn't Do you just completely forget and let the guy steal whatever he wants? No, but have compassion and mercy. And maybe try to help him so that he doesn't need to steal. it would be so wonderful if we had the resources to do that for everybody who has a problem. We don't. We need to pick and choose sometimes. But when you're faced with encounters, stop right now and think, what is the just thing to do? And how can that be tempered by the merciful thing to do? How can compassion enter into this? Who thinks that's easy? I'm glad nobody raised their hands. It's, it's not easy. We are human beings. And when we see someone doing wrong, we want to say, hey, that's wrong. I don't do that. We often do. We don't hope nobody mentions that or notices. Especially when someone does something wrong to us. That hurts. If someone came into my pantry, my bread box and stole a loaf of bread, my first instinct would be to, you know, beat him up and then tell him we got in a, tell the police we got in a fight and after I called them. Of course you if you've seen me fight, you know that wouldn't go very well. But that would be my first instinct and desire. That's, that's the human animal sinful nature in me wanting to react with violence. Wanting to defend what is mine. Forgetting that what is mine is the Lord's. on loan to me. Forgetting that as a fellow human, as a fellow sinful human being, it is my job to be merciful and compassionate to other fellow sinful human beings. And yes, if somebody's coming to murder your wife and children, you're allowed to shoot them. But as, you should never be done lightly. You don't want to become the guy running around with a pistol going, shoplifter, bang! Well, because then you're going to go to jail anyway. And you're also doing much more wrong than you are stopping. It's a hard line to follow. Why do I keep teaching on things that are hard lines to follow, balances between this and that? I don't I don't know, yeah, because it's... We hear enough teaching on, you know, on the easy stuff all the time. Actually, I was thinking today I should have probably taught on Hellfire and Brimstone because we could really get a feel for it. It's, you know, turn off the AC and it would be like, you know, Satan's pitchforks poking us in the behind in here. In the words of Patrick Swayze, be nice until it's time to not be nice. And expanding on Patrick Swayze, wait until the Lord tells you when that time is. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe. Heavenly Father, we come before you today contrite, knowing our sinful natures, knowing that we have failed you over and over again, and still getting up every time and trying our best to follow your ways, to be a glory and not an insult to you, to be a servant and not an opponent of your will. Lord, I pray that all of us would be granted the clarity of thought, the clarity of feeling, the discipline and sensitivity to follow your will when it's hard to know what that will is. Lord, it's easy for us on, on to, to pick out a sin and say, We shouldn't do that. And it's easy for us to keep from doing that sin once we know it. But as human beings, we see gray areas where you don't. And Lord, help us to navigate through those gray areas and see where the light falls and where the shadow lays. We pray this clarity of thought and feeling and discipline and obedience upon everyone here today upon everyone who is touched by the people here today. We pray that our leaders, our congregational leaders, our community leaders, our city leaders, our state leaders, and our national leaders, would all be endowed with that understanding and the obedience to follow the idea of justice tempered with mercy not falling too far to either side, but following your path where it needs to be. In the name of Messiah, we pray all these things. Mashiach, Mishua, Amen.